0: need a Bible, let's get started. Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible or ushers have one, they'll give you. So if you just raise your hand real high and keep it up until they see you, and they'll get you one. Romans chapter 1 is where we're at. If you get a Bible that we're giving you, it is uh, page 610. Romans chapter 1. I don't know how many of you made it here last week. We kicked off last week the beginning of a uh, year-and-a-half uh, study of, of the book of Romans. And uh, last week was uh, 15 verses of introduction from Paul to the Roman church, simply because they didn't know him, and he didn't really know them. And so there was the potential confusion of agenda. What's the point, and what, what do you have to say, and who are you, and what are you made of, and all those types of things you would have to answer if you are writing a letter. And so Paul did that. Verse 1, he introduces himself as a, as a missionary, as an apostle, as a servant. Some pretty, pretty big words for, for a first-time introduction. And then he gets into the gospel. In fact, it's the one of, if not the longest run-on sentence in Scripture from verse 2 to verse 6. All describing in a fairly big way the bigness of the gospel. That God, in his uh, wonderful love and pursuit of man, came in the, in the flesh... As both God and man, and gave his life a ransom for many, and the conclusion is life change and its obedience to him, and it's it's about God's glory and honor. That was verses one or verses two through six. We uh, then spent some time in verses eight through fifteen talking about the motivation that Paul had for why he was writing. And I suppose that's a really great thing to think about. If you're the recipient of the letter, why is this guy writing me? And he, first of all, commends the church in Rome for their faithfulness. In fact, it's a faithfulness that's reported all around the world, Romans. So I see it, I notice it, I commend you for it. And then he gets into his heart for this church, talking about how much he prays for them persistently and how much he cares for them as a people and and, uh, loves them. And then we finished with verses 14 and 15, which, which was really just a look at his motivation. And there were two phrases that we kind of hung out on that helped us see Paul's heart. And it was the obligation of the gospel, and it was the eagerness to preach the gospel. And I give you two words to kind of wrestle with Paul's motivation one is debt, and one is joy. That the gospel to Paul, as it should be for every believer, is a debt. It's like you have the news, you have the cure to people's cancer, you have the solution to their problem, and you got to carry it. You can't hold it in. You've got this debt of knowledge that you need to share, and that's how Paul felt about the gospel. I know it's your hope. I know it's your only hope, and so I care for it that way, and And then there's this joy, this eagerness, this desire to preach the gospel. And it's out of that whole mindset that Paul begins in verses 16 and 17 to talk about what motivates his confidence in the gospel. In fact, he has a phrase there, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so that's kind of where we're at today. Just two two verses dealing with um, why Paul is unashamed. Let me uh, read the passage. Before I do, uh, one of the... uh, One of the theologians I was reading uh, said this about these two verses. I don't know if it's uh, an overstep, a little bit exaggeration, or if it's an accurate portrayal of what is true in these verses, but at least it's going to put some pressure on us. So let me read what he says. These are the most important verses in the scriptures. (laughs) Some pressure. Um, They are the theme of the epistle and the the essence of Christianity, the heart of biblical religion. Um, That's pretty heavy duty. And I'm going to confess something. I, I just need you to listen to me. Um, I need you to put everything else I'm about to say today in this bucket, so you have some context to understand. I was, after the last service, I was in the back talking to one of my sons, and I said, "Man, it just feels like, the, when you get into the gospel, like I can't, I can't kid around. Something inside of me just compels me." To, to say it in such a way that you're either going to go that's what I believe and that's what I love or that dude offends me and I don't know if that's right or if it's wrong but the gospel isn't funny and I, I struggle with that I wish, I wish that I was you know in my personal life oh I'm very shallow to be honest with you but the gospel takes me deep and I want you to understand that we're starting a, a, a section of scripture here next week we open up with the wrath of God talk about yucks and that'll be a lot of fun, getting into the wrath of God, and then for three, three chapters talking about our condition in sin. So if you're a believer, grab your bootstraps and brace yourself, because we're going to go through this together. If you're not a believer, just know this, that the conclusion of, of all this description of our need and our concern, at the end of it, is a wonderful, unbelievable, great story of, of grace to sinners. So you prepared? Yep. You Ready? Okay, let's read these two verses. Let's dig in. There's lots here. So here's what Paul says. Now, again, this is a response to what he said last week. This obligation of the gospel and this eagerness to preach, and here's why. Therefore, or for, I am not ashamed of it. That's why I'm eager to preach it. That's why I have this obligation to it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul starts out by saying, I am not ashamed. Um, I read probably six, maybe seven different commentaries this week. And for whatever reason, every guy skipped over this phrase. just made an assumption that you understood it and just jumped right into why he's not ashamed, of which we're going to get to in a little bit. But I was more mesmerized by that phrase um, than at least, I guess, some of the guys I was reading today. But I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about shame. And specifically, why could Paul ever say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? And and maybe you, when you read that, you go, well, of course, of course not. Who would be? And so we want to talk about that a little bit. The word uh, that he uses here, ashamed, is the word humiliation or embarrassment. So I want to ask you a question this morning. What humiliates you? What embarrasses you? You know, there are lots of things I, I just made note of in my own life. I, I know one thing that embarrasses me, humiliates me, is my past. I mean, I think everybody who is a Christian who's lived any life at all with, with unbelief, you've got scars all over. In fact, if you, if, and these are the things, these are the doors you close. But if your mind reflects on where you were, you kind of look at that and go, oh, my gosh. Right? So some of us carry the shame of our past. Some of us carry the shame of our present. And what I mean by that is this. You right now are fighting the good fight. And you win some and you lose some. And these things that you pray for and you commit to and you vow to God to never do again, these are the things that keep just beating you up. These are the things you lay awake at night over. These are the things you wish you weren't and wish that God would just miraculously go, here's some pixie dust, it's gone. You don't have to deal with it ever again. But he doesn't do that. And so you wake up some weeks going, it was a good week. And then some weeks it wasn't a good week. And so you're ashamed or embarrassed or humiliated by the life you struggle with. This is a little bit of a difference, but some of us, and I think this is almost universally true, deal with humiliation of our weaknesses. And weaknesses are different than our failures and sin. This is who you are and who you wish you were, different, right? So it's like if if your environment, if your workplace values a particular strength and you don't have it and you kind of feel stupid, right? And you try to keep all that stuff under wraps because you can't do as much or you're not as you're not smart as everyone else or you can't endure as long as someone else. Whatever's valued and you have a weakness in, you're kind of humiliated. You keep it on the down low, right? Sometimes we're humiliated by our associations. Sometimes it's people who reflect on us. This is a classic parental technique, by the way. Um... We want to be, at one level, really good with our kids because we love our kids open-handedly and we want them to do well. And Then there's this other little sneaky, sinful part of us that wishes they'd do well because it would make us look good, right? Right? Okay. Remember, you're in church now. Um, and that's sneaky and it hangs around and you wish that they would look good or act a certain way or know a certain thing or try certain efforts because ultimately they would know, man, you're a really great parent what did you do? And so associations mess us up sometimes. I I asked, by the way, before I ever share a story of my family, I asked permission, um, because I have to go home. And, uh, (laughs) so this one is on my wife and I asked her permission. So, um, my most embarrassing, humiliating moment of my life happened in 1984. And, uh, I'll give you a little snapshot of my personality. Um, My dad was a pastor, grew up in a really serious environment, but I never thought, ever thought I'd be in ministry, never wanted to get up in front of anybody, couldn't get up in front of anybody, didn't want to say anything, uh, couldn't read in front of people, couldn't sing, didn't want to sing, so I sang in my bedroom, played my guitar by myself, but I could never, ever, ever think about doing something in front of someone, and my wife was just the opposite, She could sing and play piano, and she was actually recruiting with the college that I went to, and she was all over the country at churches singing and playing. And we came back to my parents' church one uh, Sunday, and they had one of these things during the offering called Special Music. If you're old enough, you know what that is. So when they're passing the plate, someone gets up and sings something. That's strange that is. Anyway, um, they asked my wife to sing, and she asked me to sing harmony. I said, no way, we're not doing that. That is not happening, and she kept begging, and I said, oh, okay, and, and she made a deal that I could sit on the, the piano bench with her, just to kind of, on the down low, and she starts to sing this song, this big Keith Green song, and she's jamming out on the piano, she starts singing, I start singing harmony, and in the first verse, she forgets the song, <laughs> right? She forgets the song, so I'm, I'm on the microphone, and she stops playing, and I just kind of went... <laughs> In front of all these people, and she's fearless, so she starts the song over again, only to get to the same spot and forget. (laughs) So by this time, we're going to have a war, and so I just have to serve. We're going out that exit door right now, as soon as it's over. I was so humiliated. Um, It went against every fear in my body anyway. I use that only as a description that shame and humiliation, embarrassment is true. Sometimes sometimes we're embarrassed of associations like even being a Christian. And I'm being really honest. I'm going to say this about how I feel. Sometimes the way Christianity or Christians portray themselves in the gospel embarrasses me. Like the gospel is about you being healthy or wealthy. Or, or that it's about your best life now. Or God's entire, entire heartbeat and affections are for you most of all. And I kind of go, oh gosh, that kills me. Please don't present Jesus like that. Please don't do that. When I drive down the street and I see a billboard and I go, "Ah." sometimes you wish you weren't on the team. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to not have Christ, but I don't want that to be what people measure me by. You see the association problem? Paul thought about the gospel. And he says, I'm not ashamed. Not even a little bit. And so I thought we'd take some time today to talk about where this confidence comes from. And how this strength grows in us. Um, if you're a Christian here this morning and I say, not I don't want you to answer. If I say, are you ashamed of the gospel? Most of you would just instinctively, gutturally say, no. How could you be? It's the gospel. It's the good news that God saves sinners and it comes by faith through Jesus. Who could ever be ashamed of that story, right? And yet, here's what we know. Almost everybody in here has been. I'm just going to say that. You know you have been. And sometimes it happens like this. It said you're at your office or your place of business and the topic of spiritual things comes up and you know what the gospel says about the topic and you start to feel how people will feel about you if you talk about it. And so you feel the calculation and the fear of man overtake you and you shrink, you don't grow. That's called shame. When your convictions make you the odd man out and so you refuse to live like the odd man out, when you know a position and or acceptance with others is on the line, based on how you live, you might adjust how you live so that you fit in line with others more, more reasonably. And I think that happens to every Christian at some point in time. And I just want you to know something, you're in good company. All throughout the scriptures, you see men of God, called men of God, shrink. Paul writes a letter to Timothy, a young pastor in Second Timothy chapter 1, and he confronts this perspective of fear and he says Tim we're not ashamed of this story don't you be ashamed of this story God didn't give us the spirit of fear and timidity but one of power and strength so Tim we got to we got to grow up Peter right walked with Jesus three and a half years when given the option to say I know him what do you do he shrunk three times it happens but somehow Paul says out loud I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of this story of the gospel. And so I want to answer this question. Why would anybody, why is it hard for us sometimes to be ashamed of the gospel? I'm going to give you a simple word. Ready? Because it's so scandalous. The reason why we shrink is because we know the message is so unbelievable. Unbelievable. And scandalous. Let, let me prove my point. Um, I want you to turn to the right to First Corinthians chapter one. Just take a couple of minutes to make a point about this scandalous message of the gospel. First Corinthians chapter one, and we're going to pick it up in verse eighteen. Ready. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the, dis- the discernment of the discerning." I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those. Who believe? For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand or seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Why um, would anybody be ashamed of the gospel? Well, Paul tells us here because it's scandalous. He actually brings up two particular types of people. In talking about the Jews and the Greeks to describe why it's scandalous, I'm going to add my own. I think if Paul was writing today, he might add another. But in in Paul's day, the Greeks were the wise ones. Of which Paul says to the wise, this gospel is foolishness. And then he says about the Jews, and the Jews represent the religious people. They're always with us. And he says they don't get it. They think it's foolishness as well. So it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And I would add this one. I would call it the indifferent or the, the relativistic nature of our generation who thinks, almost universally now, that there is no, no perception on truth, like truth can't be known. So this indifferent relativistic culture that we're in, let me, let me describe why it's scandalous to these folks. Why is it foolishness to the Greek or to the wise? Because the wise want something philosophically sophisticated and hard and, and high-minded to understand, and the gospel says it isn't. The gospel says something totally different. It makes everyone who believes in it low-minded. In fact, Jesus says the kingdom of God cannot be had by anybody who doesn't come as a child. Of all the descriptions that the writer would say and, about the gospel and how it's to be perceived and lived out is like a child. The simplicity of faith of a child. The believing heart of a child, right? The, 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 the uh, trust of a child, Nothing looks more counter to the intelligent than a child. I was watching some debates this week between an atheist agnostic and some Christians, and they go, man, they're throwing some big, mighty words around. But nobody ever wins the argument. And I can just imagine a child debating the greatest atheist. It looks absurd. It's foolishness because the gospel says you don't come based on wisdom. There is an amount of knowledge or learning that you can have. In fact, the only way you get the kingdom to come like a child. Paul says as well that the, uh, the gospel is a stumbling block to the religious. Do you know why? Because the religious person wants to do some courageous work to earn it. And the gospel says all your work is like filthy rags. The gospel offends religion. The gospel says that every good thing you've ever done doesn't amount to a hill of beans with the righteous, holy standard of God. And no matter how good you are, how much you go to church, or what you haven't done, whatever the list you are carrying, like loving so much and thinking it matters, the gospel says, no, it doesn't. Not at all. In fact, here's what's absurd about good deeds. Good deeds, when you think they merit attention with God, are more condemnation because they're man-made righteousness of which God hates so it's foolishness and it's a stumbling block. And I added this, this other one, this foolishness to the indifferent or the relativistic. That's because the indifferent person is checked out on the pursuit of truth. In fact, there isn't any really anything really true. And so um, to spend your time making room for every thought and idea because it all has equal footing makes sense to the person who doesn't think there's any absolutes. And yet the gospel says this. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth and the life and no one gets to the Father except through me. Now, you can't have that exclusive kind of a statement without confronting people who say there's no such thing as truth. And if whatever you want to believe is good for you and whatever you want to believe is good for you and we all live a happily ever after kind of life and the gospel says it's not possible because there's one truth. His name is Jesus. And everyone will be measured by what they do with that one truth. You see why I'm saying this thing is foolishness to our world? You see why it's embarrassing sometimes? You see why sometimes people shrink because they have to look at really good people and say you need Jesus. See why people shrink cuz they have to look at some really smart people and say, "Yeah, but you need Jesus." You see why you have to look at some people who are just are really nice and tolerant of everything and want give evil equal word to every idea and you have to say, "Yeah, but you're wrong." Because there's only one way. And that's why the gospel is so scandalous. It's because it destroys all human pride. Every bit of it. You can't know enough. You can't do enough. You can't ignore enough. The gospel confronts it. You can't try to save yourself. And if you do try to save yourself, it has at the end of it a death sentence in a place called hell forever. So here's what you do. And I don't know if you're here. I know last week uh, someone told me that a gentleman came to our services, heard the gospel for the first time, and trusted in Christ. So I have to assume that somebody is here in this room or in the conference center today who knows about Jesus, but you don't know him. And maybe God has confronted your whatever it is that you think is meriting salvation. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. Humble yourself. It starts with admitting that you're helpless, that you can't do anything, that your wisdom and your knowledge do not merit anything. You're, it's all worthless. You stop believing in yourself. Belief you do, but not in yourself. Believe in Christ and his finished work. Believe in Jesus alone, by faith alone, and you'll be saved according to the scriptures. And I want you to get this. If you add anything, now listen very, very, very carefully. If you add anything to Jesus alone alone, By faith alone, then the scandal disappears. Because it makes sense then to a human heart. And whenever the scandal disappears, it's because the gospel has disappeared. And when the gospel disappears, nobody gets saved. Do you understand? Does it make sense? It is a message that can only be received by faith. It is too good to be true, but it is true. And we're going to unpack why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Before we do, I I, I want to just make just a kind of a declaration about this guy writing this bold statement about the gospel. If anyone had the right at all to be ashamed or shrink back with the message of the gospel, Paul would be one of them. You have to understand, if you read through Acts or, or Corinthians or whatever, you see every time Paul preaches and lives out this gospel, he says he's not ashamed of he pays for it every time. He was imprisoned in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Berea. He was mocked in Athens. He was called a fool in Corinth, and he was stoned in Galatia, and that's only the beginning, and yet he didn't back down. He said, I'm not ashamed, and here's why. You ready? Eight things he tells us here of why he's not ashamed of the gospel, and the first one is this. It's the gospel itself. The first reason we see here is the meaning of the word gospel itself. Gospel means good news. The reason why Paul's not ashamed of it is because it's good news. It changes people's lives. We talked about this last week that joy makes people talk. The gospel is a good story to tell. Now, I've not had a lot of times in my life where I had to deliver, like, bad news. But that's a horrible thing to do, to talk about the loss of a loved one, or the wayward heart, or the sin of a, of a friend. But the gospel is like winning the lottery. The gospel is like having a baby. The best thing you ever, ever could imagine happening to you, happened to you in Christ. And so Paul says, I'll tell you why I'm not ashamed. It's good news. Makes sense? There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's the best story possible. He goes on and says this about why he's not ashamed. He says it is salvation. Do you see it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Not just any salvation, but our salvation. Paul is talking about this from a personal perspective. It is salvation. Salvation from sin, salvation from uh, the control and the consequences of sin, uh, salvation from the collateral damage of sin, you know, the damage that it did between you and God. God is holy and he's just and you are not, and the distance between holiness and sinfulness is an unbridgeable distance. That damage and the damage that sin does between people. Some of us in here have lots of people that we are at odds with because of sin. The damage sin does to us right? The burden you carry, the weight that you feel. I just got done with a conversation with somebody who was is, who is wrestling with their past and letting their past do more dictating to their life than what Jesus has done. I hate that. And, and I'm just a guy. I know Jesus hates it. If Jesus gave his life to redeem a people, to give them a new name and a new destiny, and people spend most of their time talking about their failures that Jesus delivered them from, how offensive is that to God? You get it? smile, do you get it? (laughs) And I'm just saying the gospel is salvation. It rescues us from the guilt and the power and the pollution of sin. That's what it did right now. Now, are we working this thing out over time until eternity? Absolutely. But positionally, as far as God's concerned, it's a done work. Amen? Salvation. There's a third thing that he says here is why he's not ashamed, and that is is the gospel is God's way of salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. Um, Paul is not declaring some confidence in a salvation that has its roots in the ability of people. Paul is not saying, I'm unashamed of a gospel that has man-made effort involved with it. Paul is talking about a God alone, God to sinners alone message, and he's unashamed of that one. Salvation wasn't man's idea, and it wasn't us as sinners climbing our way out of our pit, even though that's instinctive in every person. Now, I need you to listen very carefully. Listen, okay? Salvation, this wonderful story is about God coming after you. When you, in your brokenness, didn't even want it or know it. Do you see that? Does it crush you? I mean, in a good way? Does it move your heart that when you were at war and at enmity with God, God came on a rescue mission personally for you? Like you, wherever you were, whatever garbage heap you were in, God came after you if you're saved. If you know him and you trust in Jesus Christ, whatever that was, he came after you. I can't, for whatever reason, whenever I think about the personal nature of God pursuing people, like names, not generally, but specifically, it kills me. I found a a poem, not a big poem reader, but it was in a commentary. It's anonymous, so I'll take credit for it. Um, (laughs) I'd like to say I wrote it. I didn't write it. But when I read it, I cried. In fact, I kind of sobbed for 10 minutes because of the punchline. Now, I'll try my best to read this without cracking, but it says all you need to know about God's pursuit. So just listen. Oh, long and dark the stairs I trod with trembling feet to find my God. Gaining a foothold bit by bit and slipping back and losing it never progressing, striving still with weakened grasp and faltering will, bleeding to climb to God while he serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby, down to the lowest step, my fall, as if I'd not climbed at all. Now when I lay despairing there, listen, a footfall on the stair, on that same stair where I, afraid, faltered and fell and lay dismayed. And lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. You believe that? Every person in here, here in the conference center, if, you're, if you trust in Christ, it's personal. It's not general. It's not church big C. It's people. It's your name. He came after you. Whatever garbage heap you were in, whatever human effort you tried, every time you fell back, he pursued you. It's of God. Do you believe that, church? He says he's not ashamed of the gospel, too, because it's the power of God. For I'm not ashamed of it. For it's the power of God. It's powerful enough to accomplish what God had planned, and that was totally resurrecting people. The word power is the word dunamis in the Greek, which means dynamite. That's where we get our word dynamite from so you can just kind of picture that able to produce a strong effect no kidding let me tell you about the gospel the gospel is not about adjustments it's not about a tweak it's not about a little bit more knowledge or a little bit more hope it's not it's not about fixing this little problem or adding this little perspective or this little effort listen to me very very carefully The gospel is about resurrection. The gospel is about life. You don't need adjustments. You need life. Because the Bible says we're dead in our transgressions and sins and unresponsive to the good news of Jesus. We can't and won't pursue it. We're so dead, we're at war in our deadness. And God says, Live, and we live. Do you believe that? It's the power of God to bring life and resurrection, and strength, and holiness to us. He goes on, he says, the gospel is for everyone. Do you see it? That's why Paul says he's not ashamed. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, to deal with that statement, um, I want to deal with that last little section to the Jew first and also the Greek, just to clarify for you. Paul is not saying that the Jew is above the Gentile or that he's more favored or more important. Paul is simply talking about timing. Because this wonderful message that sinners can be saved by faith alone, accredited righteousness, came to the Jews first. Right? They knew adoption first. They had the covenants and laws. They had a relationship to God based on faith alone, like Abraham did. Jesus came to the Jews first. It's only talking about sequence, not not importance. Do you get it? So here's Paul's point. The gospel is for everyone. Now, instead of us thinking like church person or religious person or, or Jew or Gentile, think evil. The gospel is for housewives and criminals gospel is is for church people and drug addicts. The gospel is for farmers and pastors and plumbers and the worst of the worst, right? It's for everyone. And so I I have to say this. Some of us sit here today kind of wondering, yeah, 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 sounds good, but I don't think it can reach me because you have no idea who I am. Recently, I've been into this kick, um, going to YouTube and watching, like, random videos. And uh, it's better than TV, by the way. Uh, I was watching the story of David Berkowitz. You know that name? So I, I mentioned it to the worship team at 8.30. I no idea who you're talking about. Um, David Berkowitz, let me just clue you in. Also known as the son of Sam. In 1977, believed that Satan had called him to kill. He took on the name Son of Sam as a, a uh, kind of a Son of Satan kind of moniker. And he went out of the streets of New York City and paralyzed 10 million people just by carrying a gun. And he would shoot people. So there'd be a couple of kids dating in a car. Boom, he'd blow them away. Thirteen months, he killed people. And uh, he got caught. And he would say of himself that he felt like Satan had possessed him at the age of five. And all this crazy stuff of his life, all the way up to all those murders in 1977, were a result result of following the words of Satan. He was reading the Satan Bible. He was going to a Satan church. He was totally committed to the darkness. He went to prison in 1987. Some guy walked up to him on the yard and told him that Jesus loved him. And his life changed. Now, If you have the time, you should just go Google the testimony of David Berkowitz because you will see that God has transformed a Satan-loving murderer who's serving six life terms. He's transformed him into a new creature who loves Jesus to such a convicting level. It's ridiculous. He's kind of sort of the pastor of Attica Prison in Upper State New York. He leads worship, and he loves the scriptures, and he's a transformed man. Now, I only use that illustration for one reason. Let's pretend for a second that David Berkowitz represents the extreme. The gospel is for the extreme. You Don't, don't sit here and think that your story is the unreachable story or that your burden is the unsolvable problem. Trust me, the gospel is for you, according to the scriptures, to you if you believe However tragic or train wreck your life is, the gospel can reach you and transform you. I don't care if you're addicted to things. I don't care if you hate life. I don't care if you're a Satan worshiper. The gospel can find you. We're just about to get into a section of scripture, by the way, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, that talks about the wrath of God. And then for two chapters, we're talking about the consequence of sin. It's going to be a lot of fun, by the way. A lot of hard, hard climbing, Okay. And in this section of Scripture, it says here that the wrath of God is revealed on people who deny the truth and in their living out of this denial, in this lie, do all sorts of horrible things for themselves and the world around them. And yet, the gospel is for those people too. And the only condition is do you believe? Do you trust? Do you see your condition? Do you see it as sin? Do you embrace God's solution who is Jesus for your sin? And if you do that you live. And we're not talking about just tomorrow in heaven someday. We're talking about right now, like David Berkowitz, even though he's got six life terms, he is loving Jesus, reading the Bible and discipling other Christians. An amazing story. Do you believe that? The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is also, as Paul says, the reason why he's not ashamed, it's a revealed gift. Look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's not ashamed of this gospel because it's a revealed gospel. God is the one who opens the eyes of sinners. As as unbelievable as it sounds like, let's pretend for a second the greatest orator ever was standing up in front of you going, let me explain to you and give a logical argument to the gospel. (laughs) You still couldn't get it. Unless God reveals it to you and peels back the eyes and opens the heart to receive it. You can't understand it. And that's what the gospel is. The power in the gospel is that God's the the authenticator of it. He's the initiator. He's the one who opens eyes. It's revealed to us. God reveals our sin. He reveals his love and he reveals his solution who is Christ. So no one can figure this thing out on their own. They need God. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. Two more. You ready? He also says that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's righteousness. Verse 17 again, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness is the cure. It's what we need. First Peter says this unbelievably short passage that creates a ginormous burden on people. God says, you must be holy as I am holy. Easy to say, but look what it does to us. You gotta be holy, Church. Holy, like God, perfect, no sin. What do you do with that? Nothing apart from Jesus. But here's what happens. That huge dilemma and standard of holiness is totally solved in receiving Christ's righteousness for you. There's a thing that theologians like to call imputation, like a transferred account Like we in our sin deserve all the punishment God has to offer because God's standard is perfect and I'm not. And yet somehow God could take my sin and put it on Jesus so that when Jesus died, he was actually dying for the penalty for my sin. And his righteousness, because Jesus lived a perfect life in all ways, it was transferred to me. And now I'm righteous. And God's where I used to be all scarred and broken. Now I'm covered in the righteous robes of Jesus. And I'm as holy as as they can possibly be. It's a righteousness from God. Do you believe that? One last thing. He says why is not ashamed, and that is because the gospel is by faith for faith. You see it at the end there? This righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, the way of the good news comes through faith. And this is the scandalous part that we started with at the very beginning. This is something that goes against every human inclination. You can't know enough, learn enough, be enough at all to merit salvation. It is a given faith. It is a revealed faith. It comes by faith in Jesus alone, by grace alone. But there's another aspect to this that Paul just kind of throws on us and we'll unpack in the months to come. And that is, it's not just faith to be saved, it's faith to live. From faith, for faith. It's living out your life. In other words, there's never a point in time in your Christian life where you go, okay, God, thanks, I got it. You don't just kind of come to your senses and go, I was a sinner, and now I'm saved. I trust in Christ. I receive a righteousness. Now, God, you stay over there, and I'll go over here and work really hard. And you'll be proud of me, God. You really will. And trust me, when it's all said and done, I'll merit some of this. No. Every bit of your life from conversion all the way through this life and the glory is all an act of faith of which God gives and holds on to. There is only one person in this story who's going to get any credit, and it doesn't you. It's God. He is jealous for His glory. He will not share it with another and He won't share it with you. And if there's good things that come out of us, and the Bible says they do, they're the inevitable outflowing of a changed life. Who gets the credit for that? You can say that with more confidence. Absolutely. Every bit of good He does for His glory and His good purposes. Amen? And so when Paul says, let me just tell you about this wonderful, amazing story, of which I'm not ashamed of, it starts by faith, so it's scandalous against human pride and religion. And by the way, you never get to get out of that. It's always by faith. The righteous live by faith. Now, we're going to talk about the gospel for a long time. In fact, if we talk about it every Sunday, I'm I'm cool with that because it's the best news I ever heard. But I wanna leave you with a couple of thoughts today, if you would, and I don't ever throw challenges on you too much, I don't think. But I would like you to do a couple of things for me this week. I would like for you to do some soul searching. Just answer one question. Do you live like you're ashamed of the gospel? We uh, talked about intentional evangelism during our Building a Stronger Church series. Like God really has given us a message not just to change us but to change the world around us. And he's called us into the the gospel ministry. Every one of us who's a Christian, every one of us are about making disciples. And it starts with telling people the good news of Christ. So let me ask you this question. Just search your own heart. Do you shrink away from the gospel? Are you ashamed of it? And, and the only reason I say that is because everyone struggles with it at times. And maybe there's a realignment you can do. Maybe, maybe you're one of those folks who go to a school where you'll just be ostracized if you say, I love Jesus, and you'll be the weirdo. I get it. I get it. Maybe, maybe this is about praying up some strength and getting some Christians to care for you while you go back in there and say, I'm unashamed of Jesus. So it is what it is. And the Bible talks about the, the uh, privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. If you've got an office complex where you know that what you believe in and how you live your life means you won't climb the ladder, or are you willing to stay low for the gospel's sake? It's a good question to ask. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. And I think he has nothing more than we have. So we should ask that. Um, one other thought as you leave here today. Promise me that you will consider what you're trusting in for your salvation. To some of you who would say, I'm a believer, it'll take you five seconds. You're going to sit here and go, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. I got nothing else to say. I trust in Christ. Some of you have sat here this morning, and maybe you were here last week, and you're still not certain. Maybe you're like the religious um, who is really, really good, and you have a lot of confidence in your goodness. Or maybe you're the, like the Greek, the wise who just can outthink everybody and you're absolutely certain that your arguments and explanations for why things work the way they do or don't work merits you something and and i just want you to consider what are you hanging on to for your salvation because the bible says true salvation and by that i mean having your sins totally forgiven and covered and by that i mean having a relationship with god and an eternity that lasts forever is directly dependent on you not trusting in anything but jesus Would you do those two things, right? Soul search, are you ashamed? And then ask yourself the question, what are you trusting in for your salvation? Let me uh, pray for us this morning that God would give us the heart, if we're Christians, to give us the heart to be bold about the gospel in our life. And then I wanna pray for you. If, you're, if you would say of your own heart that you don't know Christ in the way that I've described, that God would just kind of overpower you with this truth this morning. Let's pray together. God, I do pray for us. If we call ourselves believers in Christ, it's because of the work you started. So God, I pray that you would create in us a confidence about the gospel not a confidence in how we'll be treated or how we'll be accepted or what people will think of us, but God, a confidence in the gospel and Jesus, our Savior. God, would you create in us a desire to have that kind of approval more than man's approval? If we'd be the kind of church that was bold for, for his sake, we'd take risks. God, I do pray for those who are uh, here today who would save of their own lives, I'm not certain, I know where I have stand with Christ. And maybe they have pursued good deeds, maybe they have uh, pursued wisdom, or maybe they've just decided to ignore it and pretend like it's not true. Any one of those things has at the end of it a a death sentence. God, would you bring life? Reveal it to their hearts. Pursue them unto salvation, I pray. God, we pray this in Christ's name.